0: Ligonier Ministries, the home of Renewing Your Mind, presents Dust to Glory, an overview of the Bible with R.C. Sproul. In the New Testament, the Gospel of John begins with the well-known words of the prologue. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then it goes on for several more verses, and the prologue comes to a conclusion Later on in the chapter, when John writes, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, full of grace and truth and so on. And that phrase, the Word became flesh, refers to the great mystery of the Incarnation. But when John describes that event of Incarnation, he says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. That's kind of a loose translation of the original text. Literally, the words that are used are these. And the Word became flesh and He pitched His tent among us. Or even more specifically, the Word became flesh and He tabernacled among us. And when we look at the book of Exodus, we see three major themes of importance for our understanding of the whole scope of redemptive history. The Exodus itself with the attending Passover, the giving of the law, and thirdly, the establishment of the house of God, the tent of meeting or the tabernacle. God goes into painful detail with Moses in giving instructions on how the tabernacle is to be constructed in the Old Testament. And this is a decisive moment in the development of Old Testament religion because prior to the tabernacle, there was no firmly established central sanctuary for the people of God. If we look back in the patriarchal period, we know that it is marked by important moments of worship. Whenever there was a significant event that took place in these people's lives, they would respond in worship to God by the offering of sacrifices or the building of an altar. If you go back and look through the patriarchal period, you'll see, for example, Moses, after he came from from the ark after the flood waters had abated and receded and he expressed his gratitude for God he built an altar there Abraham built an altar Isaac built an altar Jacob after he had wrestled with an angel and after he had his vision of the ladder up to heaven you recall during the night he dreamed and saw the angels of God ascending and descending on his ladder and when he awakened in the morning he said Surely God was in this place, and I knew it not. And so he took the stone that he had used as a pillow for the evening, and he anointed it with oil. And after he anointed it with oil, he marked that spot and named the spot Bethel, or the house of God. For this, he said, is the gateway or the portal into heaven. Now, what is significant in these incidents that we find in the patriarchal period is that we see the sacralization of both time and space. You recall that in the Passover, God said, I want you to remember this time for all time. And so God took the ordinary days of that period and made them sacred, consecrated them by the memorial of the Passover. In like manner, in the Old Testament, we constantly see examples where space is consecrated or where things are set apart as holy places. Remember, When God appeared to Moses in the burning bush, and he called to him and said to him, Moses, Moses, put off thy shoes from off thy feet, for the ground whereon thou standest is holy ground. Now, it's important to understand that in biblical faith and in biblical religion, the domain of God is the whole earth. As he says to to Moses in the conflict with Pharaoh, God is the God of all of the earth. His presence is ubiquitous. That is, he is omnipresent. There is nowhere where God is not. The psalmist cried out later, Where can I flee from thy spirit, O Lord? If I ascend into heaven, thou art there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, thou art there. And so that idea of the universal presence of God is deeply rooted in the Old Testament, and the whole earth is sacred. The whole planet is holy insofar as it is His possession. But in spite of these principles, there are still these intrusions into time and into space where God makes himself known in a peculiar way and in a particular sense that take on special significance. And so during the patriarchal period, when God would meet with his people, the place where he came became sacred. And to this day, we still refer to Palestine as the Holy Land. And we make pilgrimages there. And we want to walk where Jesus walked and stand where Jesus stood. And we're somewhat awestruck, even though the earth is commonplace. It's made holy by the visitation of God. Now, the whole point of, this, of the creation of the tabernacle is to dramatize to Israel the promise of God, I will be with you. He had promised that to Abraham. Abraham, I will never leave you nor forsake you. The same promise was given to Isaac. And the same promise even at Bethel in the midnight dream was repeated to Jacob. I will never leave you nor forsake you. When Christ comes into the world, he is called Emmanuel, which means God with us. And so the way in which the presence of God is marked and outwardly symbolized in the Old Testament wilderness experience is in the construction of the tabernacle, the tabernacle as the tent of meeting, the place where God says that he will come and be with his people and so he commands that Moses build this enormous structure. And it is a tent. And the reason it is a tent is that the people of Israel have not yet settled into the promised land. They are still in transition. They're a semi-nomadic people moving from place to place, wandering about in the wilderness. But the whole point is that wherever they go, it is God who leads them And it is God who promises to be with them. The people themselves are living in tents. And so they are commanded to build a tent for God. Now, whenever the people of Israel would move from place to place, and they would come to a new location or a new site for them to remain for a a period of time, They would encamp basically in circular fashion, and each segment of the arc of the Circle would be inhabited by a particular tribe, and the tribes would be camping all around the perimeter, but in the direct mathematical center of the camp was to be the tabernacle the tent of meeting, the house of God. Now, this symbolized many things. As I've said already, it indicated the visible reminder of the promise of God to be in the midst of His people. I remember back during the civil rights movement in our own national history, a song was composed that became popular, particularly for those who were involved in uh, civil rights marches and so on. The people would sing together. We shall not be moved. Remember, we shall not, we shall not be moved, and so on. And those words were borrowed directly from the Psalms of the Old Testament, specifically from Psalm 46, where that psalm talks about the threat of destruction and catastrophe that might befall the nations. The sea roars and is troubled. And the sea beats against the sides of the mountain, and the storm is so great that perhaps even the mountains will be cast into the midst of the sea. But in contrast with the threatening imagery of the storm and of the sea is the peaceful and calm image of the river. Traditionally, in Hebrew poetry, the sea was the symbol of threatening power, where the river was the symbol of life. Because the psalmist goes on to say, But there is a river, the streams whereof make glad the city of God. For God is in the midst of her, she shall not be moved. In other words, the reason for the psalmist's confidence of enduring and of stability and of permanency was the promise that God would be in the midst of his people. And so that's this, the first and, and foremost significance of the placement of the tabernacle when the people gathered while on the march. The second significance is this, that Israel was not the only semi-nomadic people in antiquity. Most of the nations of the Semites at that time were people who grazed and browsed through the desert regions and so on, and even other nations that had permanent settlements would oftentimes go on the march for purposes of military conquest or whatever. And the custom in antiquity was that when the nations were on the move and lived in tents, the central tent in the establishment was always occupied by the king. This was the king's place and the symbolism of the tabernacles being in the center of the encampment was that that the jewish people at this point have no king except god god is their king and he is a king who is not a remote or an aloof king but he's a king who dwells in the midst of his people well let's look now At some of the structure of the tabernacle itself. The entrance to the tent faces the east. So this is the east, this is the north, this is the south, and this is the west. And the tent was portable, could be put up, taken down. And when it was taken down and transported, it was to be transported by a subdivision of the Levites. Remember, the Levites were set apart for priestly duties. And of the tribe of Levi, there was a family or a clan of the house of Koath, and, and the Koathites were responsible for transporting the sacred vessels that were part of the tabernacle so that nobody else was allowed to handle these things. They were trained their whole lives for the proper procedure of how to move and tear down and set up the Articles of the Tabernacle. We see that later on with the sudden destruction of Uzzah when he touched the Ark of the Covenant because he violated the prescriptions that were given in the ancient setting for the handling of the special sacred vessels of the Ark. The Tabernacle itself, or the sanctuary, was 1,200 square yards in size, twelve hundred square yards. That is a huge tent. But the the sanctuary itself had uh, the bulk of the space of this tent was what was called the outer court. And then there was the inner court which was called the holy place. And then the innermost court was called the Holy of Holies or the inner sanctum or the Sanctus Sanctorum, the most holy place. Now, it is significant that the perimeter outside was protected by the Levites. And The rank and file person did not come into the... They would come up to the the, uh, tabernacle, but they didn't enter the tabernacle. And certain things took place inside the sanctuary. Now, again, the inner sanctuary, including both the holy place and the holy of holies, was 55 feet by 15. And in the outer court, there were two articles that were found there. There was... The laver and the altar of uh, burnt offering. Now, the laver was made, let me see, first of all, was made chiefly of bronze, and it was the place where the priests would come to go through the purification rites. Before they could, could fulfill their priestly duties, they had themselves to be cleaned. They had to wash, and the word laver is the word from which we get the word bath. And so they would, as it were, symbolically take a bath by cleansing themselves in the water that was contained in the bronze laver. Now, the altar of burnt offering is the place where the animal sacrifice were burned, and it was out there in the outer court. And it had four posts, one on each corner, that were called the horns of the altar. And sometimes the animals would be fastened to the horns of the, horns of the altar in order to uh, facilitate the whole process of, of slaying them and, and burning them. We remember when Absalom sought sanctuary by running in and grabbing hold of the horns of the altar. Now, the interesting thing to me is that as you go closer to the Holy of Holies. There is a progressive level of sacredness which is indicated by a progressive level of the preciousness of the materials that are used for the vessels and the furniture therein. Now, again, come back to the big picture. There is this circle that describes the whole camp. And everything outside of the encampment was considered unclean. This was the place of the Gentiles. This was that which symbolized the outer darkness being removed from the center where God pours out the gifts of His mercy and of His grace. And the closer you get to the center, the closer you approach the direct presence of God. Now, again, they understood that God actually was everywhere. But in His redemptive activity, where the means of His grace were focused, there was this most sacred of all places, the Holy of Holies. And the further you got away from the Holy of Holies, the further you were moving to that place which was unclean and symbolized the outer darkness. The symbolism of this Is used throughout the teaching of the scriptures in the writings of the prophets and on into the New Testament. It's been said, for example, that the Gospel of John follows in its content and the book of Revelation very heavily upon the furniture that was found first in the tabernacle and later in the temple, where you have the candlesticks and all of that sort of thing repeated, and that Christ in the Gospel of John is called the light of the world. Because in the holy place, you had the candlestick, the seven-branched candlestick, the menorah, where the light was kept perpetually burning, again symbolizing the eternal presence of God. And also, in the holy place, you had the altar of incense. And it was smaller than the altar of burnt offering, but was uh, comprised of more precious materials. But the purpose of the altar of burnt incense was to illustrate the work of prayer. The priests would go there and offer their prayers for the well-being of the people. And the significance of the incense was that as the incense burned on the altar it gave a pleasant aroma to the environment. And that was important because, remember, you're slaughtering animals in and around this sanctuary, and that is somewhat odiferous from time to time. And so the olfactory sense of the religious centerpiece of Israel was made more sweet and delightful by the presence of the altar of incense. It's also important that this altar informs much of the language of the Old Testament and the New Testament. for example, when the people of Israel were obedient to God and God was pleased with them, he would say that the fragrance of their prayers was a sweet aroma in his nostrils. But when the people became corrupt and their worship degenerated into rote externalism and so on, God spoke to them in judgment, saying, I despise your feasts, I abhor your solemn assemblies, and your sacrifices have become loathsome to me. They are a stench in my nostrils. Again, in the New Testament, the work of Christ is described as being a sweet aroma and fragrance to God, as He not only fulfills the whole of the tabernacle, but in a real sense, every one of its parts he 's the light of the world he 's the bread of life. The other article in the holy place is the table of showbread, and he is the bread of life. where there there 's a loaf of bread provided for each of the twelve tribes, indicating god 's provision of his people in their needs in this world and in the wilderness. Christ is the labor of our regeneration. He is the one who cleanses his people from their sins. And he is the one who has been sacrificed for them. All of the personal work of Christ is symbolized in these various elements of the tabernacle, but nothing like what happens in the Holy of Holies, where there the most sacred article of all of Jewish religion is found, the ark or the chest It's called the Ark of the Covenant. It's a chest that is made of acacia wood and covered over with pure gold and then with these massive, sculptured, fashioned cherubim with their wings hiding and covering the the chest there. Now, it's the chest that contains things. The things that are contained in the chest are the tablets of stone, the Ten Commandments, the rod of Aaron that bloomed, And a pot of the manna that was gathered and preserved from God's provision of his people in the wilderness. But the most important thing about the Ark was that the lid of the chest was called the mercy seat. Because the Ark of the Covenant was the symbol of God's throne. His throne of authority and the seat of judgment so that it was into the Holy of Holies that the high priest and only the high priest could go and only once a year on the day of Yom Kippur and even then only after specific ritual cleansing that was elaborate. And there he went and sprinkled the blood of the lamb on the mercy seat. In Greek, it's called the hilasterion or the reconciliation because in that action, The blood of the sacrifice becomes a covering of the judgment seat of God that protects us from his judgment. And so the whole work of redemption, its judgment, its mercy, is found in the living symbolism of the tent of meeting that God visits with his people. For more information about Ligonier Ministries, call 1-800-435-4343 or contact us on the web at Ligonier.org. That's L-I-G-O-N-I-E-R dot O-R-G. Or write P.O. Box 54-7500, Orlando, Florida, 32854.